0: MyPatriotSupply.com
1: Hello, and welcome to It's a Fandom Thing. I'm your host, Erin Marlowe, and each week I'm joined by a panel of guests to discuss all things fandom and pop culture, primarily from a female perspective. You'll find everything from fanfic, to cosplay, to Schitt's Creek, to supernatural, and everything in between. So put on your favorite piece of fandom merch, set aside that fanfic that you're writing about your OTP, and sit back and enjoy this week's episode. Hello and welcome to It's a Fandom Thing. We are continuing our celebration of Pride Month with a discussion about the film Brokeback Mountain. As I've warned a couple of times, this is probably going to be very emotional probably for my panelists as well. But uh, since I cry at the drop of a hat, I am assuming I'm going to cry a lot, especially when we talk about Heath Ledger. That's why I'm saving that discussion for our very last part of this. Otherwise, I just couldn't make it through. So this should be a lot of fun, but could be really heavy at times. I'm going to give a couple of trigger warnings for this one, since this one deals a lot with homophobia. Um, There's even, you know, that we might even mention a little bit about hate crimes and um, that stuff. And I'm not sure if other things will come up, but this could be a triggering episode since this movie is a lot about homophobia and self-hatred and self-loathing. And so, yeah, so just a warning for that. If that's triggering, you won't want to listen to this. And of course, I mean, this movie is from 2005, so I really don't think I need to say this, but I will say this. We're going to be spoiling this movie. So if you don't want to know what happens to these characters, then don't listen and yeah, so but this should be a good discussion. So I'm going to go around and have my panelists introduce themselves and tell me something you're into right now in pop culture. Danelle, who hasn't been on, and I don't even remember the last time you were on here. I was trying to think about that, but it's been forever,
2: <laughs> right? It has been a while, so I'm happy to be back. Thank you for having me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So what am I into right now? Well, my oh, first, I should say, my name is Danelle, um, and thanks again for having me and. Uh, what am I into right now? Um, I've kind of been into Clarice. Um, I really think that's been a great kind of reimagining of the of the whole, you know, Silence of the Lambs, uh, you know, I guess uh, trilogy or whatever you want to call it. I think they've done a really great job with that. And, of course, I, I went back and rewatched It's Creek just because that's so fabulous and so much fun. So that's kind of a little bit about what I've been into lately. Awesome.
1: Well, does Clarice, does it have, is Hannibal on there at all? Is the character of Hannibal on there He's
2: mentioned, um, but no, we haven't seen him. What I love is that it takes place right after,
1: after Buffalo
2: Bill and what happens to Clarice after and going back to the FBI. And I think they've done a really, really wonderful job of capturing that eerie, just amazing kind of atmospheric feeling of the film without it being pure, pure horror Um, or creepy but it's it's got that creepy vibe it's it's really well done so I highly recommend it if you haven't caught that yet Uh,
1: yeah I I just wonder because as I mentioned in our fandom confessions episode I do not like silence the lambs and I do not like the character of Hannibal and so that's why I was wondering because I was like if it's not focused on him I might have a a better feel of it but yeah and then we're going to be revisiting Shit's Creek in a couple of weeks everybody so Ooh, we are revisiting okay. that one because that's one of our most popular episodes so we're going to be mainly just focusing on the way that show handles
3: sexuality so okay and Michelle uh, I'm Michelle and uh, like she said I'm a co-host of Liberty Diner Dish right now I am really into in general audible uh, I think because With my job, I spend so much time in front of a screen. I'm not really watching a lot of TV or movies right now, but I'm reading a lot. So Mm -hmm. through Audible, even though I think it's highway robbery, that I only get one credit per month. (laughs) Um, So I'm spending a lot of unnecessary money on uh, books. But uh, yeah, and so I'm into like fantasy right now. And I'm starting to kind of venture into some MM fantasy books. Awesome. Cool. Well, and this
1: is Aaron, and what I'm excited about, and this will have already happened when this drops I get to go see a movie in a few hours in a movie theater, in an actual movie theater. The power of being vaccinated, everyone I'm going with is vaccinated, and I can't even begin to tell you how excited I am. I haven't been in a movie theater since February 2020, and movie theaters are like one of my safe places, and it's like a second home to me. So the fact that I get to go there and see a movie, and I'm seeing a quiet place too, which I've heard is fantastic. So I'm very excited. And I know me, and I know I'm going to probably cry when I get to the movie theater. <laughs> I'm such a dork. But I'm so excited. So get your vaccine, everybody. This is the only way we are going to get back to normal for people that can actually get their vaccine. Get your vaccine. So that's my little rant there about that. But I'm just so excited. Okay, so let's get into Brokeback Mountain. And I want to know, first off, before we get into the characters, what your initial reactions were to the film, Danelle? Well, um, honestly, it was
2: probably the biggest gut punch I've ever had in a film experience. Um, it was shocking to me. I didn't expect that. Having a lot of friends in, in the um, LGBTQ um, A plus community and been around, had, having been around that community for years at that point, I knew the story was going to be heavy, you know. I, I didn't, ex- but I didn't expect to feel the way it did afterwards. Um, I think all of us that went together really walked out of there just <laughs> devastated. In fact, we we walked across. I saw it at the Esquire, <laughs> um, and I remember we walked across to um, and I'm, the Hornet. I think we walked over to the Hornet to have a drink because we just couldn't go home. Like we just needed to be together and just sit with that. I found it to be beautiful, absolutely, cinematically just stunning, but just the biggest gut punch <laughs> that I've ever had in a film. It was
1: absolutely um, beautiful and heartbreaking at the same time. And, Michelle,
3: what were your initial impressions? I I can't remember, and I have a tendency to do this, I don't remember things correctly, and so sometimes I'm not sure which is the truth and which is a lie. But, <laughs> so I'm trying to decide. If I watched this by myself or if I watched it with the the friend who actually introduced me to Queer as Folk, but I do remember watching it and I want to say it had been out for a while and I was in college and um I remember being a very silent watch. Like I did not <laughs> you know, speak much at all, just kind of taking it in. I grew up watching Westerns with my grandparents, but they were totally different from <laughs> you know this movie. Uh but I remember the buzz about it, even lingering after a couple of years. And so um, I knew that I wanted to see it. I had it on my list to watch when I got a quiet moment that I could watch this movie without being judged and which is silly, but anyway, and I do remember being crushed by the time we got to the very end of it. Uh, I think in the beginning of it, this was, um, I don't think I had seen any other uh, queer stories on, you know, in in a movie like this. And so I was just kind of taking it all in, and then I think I was I almost felt like this need to watch it from an academic perspective, you know, if, if that makes sense, and not just from a right. very human emotional perspective, even though that's what it it became for me. And so, just t- kind of taking it in, and then like, what do I react to? What do I not react to? How should I feel about this? What's okay to feel about this? What what should I think about that? And but at the end of it, I remember thinking, oh, okay, well, this is two people who want to be together, but for all these reasons can't be. And so that's relatable because whether it's because it's the same sex couple or it's an interracial couple or, or, you know, all these different things that society says you can't be together because you're like this and you're like this or whatever. And so to me that made it, um, that helped paint it in a way that I could try to understand it in in the context of everything else that I was used to seeing and watching.
1: Yeah. And I saw this, I, I lived in Wichita for like a year, which I still can't believe I lived in Wichita, and I was living in Wichita when this movie came out. And I remember seeing it in a theater there. And it actually was a packed theater. I saw it a couple times in the theater. And I remember I was sitting next to this guy. And by the time the movie ended, he was just sobbing. He was just, I mean, just tears just pouring down his face. But like silently crying. I mean, even though he was sobbing, it was like there, were no, there was no sound coming out. And it was so striking to me because I was, I did don't know, didn't know who this person was, don't know what his story was, but I just could feel how this movie and this story was like a gut punch to him. And so it was a very, very interesting and memorable experience. It was also very interesting to see it in a place that seemed, at least to me, very conservative, in a town that seemed very conservative, a state that was very conservative. And so I wondered, you know, what the whole audience felt watching that, if there was anybody in there who saw it just out of curiosity and it may have changed their mind or something like that. I always had wanted to somehow, if it had been possible, like poll the audience kind of thing. But I remember being very happy that the theater was packed and full and sold out and all of that. But it was just, it was just an, I think the emotional gut punch, I think that's the best way to describe it. And there really had not been anything like this in mainstream movies ever. I mean, with big named stars and, you know, stuff like that, that hadn't been done. I mean, having, you know, Heath Ledger and Jake Gyllenhaal in this movie who were considered, you know, like hot actors at the time and stuff to have them playing closeted men who do end up having some very intimate moments together was pretty remarkable at that time. That wasn't something you would normally see and you wouldn't normally have actors who who are straight playing these characters and being OK with playing these characters. Um, and, you know, I mean, now if you were to make this movie, I think there would be a real good discussion about whether or not these actors should play these characters since they are straight. But at that time it was just, it was just revolutionary. The whole movie was revolutionary. And so, yeah, it was, gut punch is the best way, the best way to describe it. And it was also a very beautiful movie to look at, even though it was painful. It was beautifully shot. The cinematography was incredible. So it was just a gorgeous, luscious movie. Really, with, with some amazing, incredible performances, which we'll get into one of those at the very end, because I will not be able to make it through if we talk about that one first. Okay, but let's talk about the characters. So let's first talk about arguably the main character, and that's um, Ennis Del Mar, played by the amazing Heath Ledger. So what are your thoughts on this character, know?
2: I just remember being really blown away from the moment he opened his mouth. Um, I think everything that he put into that performance, and especially the physicality in that performance that he brought to it, really, really, he just took it to another level. And I think he just embodied Ennis. Um, in fact, I I was looking up some trivia in preparation, you know, just some some information in, in preparation for today. And I I read that Annie Perlow, um, who wrote the short story that it's based on, she had written personal messages and gave them out both Heath and Jake um, copies. And she realized that she had addressed Heath as Ennis and didn't put Heath on it. And she left it that way purposely because she felt that he really truly was Ennis. And I think that that speaks volumes, you know, because he truly was the embodiment of who she pictured when she wrote the character. But with that said, I mean, Ennis is just such an interesting character. He's this guy who's been through so much in his life, you know, losing parents young, being raised by siblings in a in a tough world. You know, I grew up here. I've, I was born and raised here in Colorado, but I've lived on the plains. I've lived in the mountains and I grew up in small towns on farms and around a lot of cowboys. <laughs> so I know the mentality. I know the type. In fact, that was one of the things that struck me. And I'll, I'll talk about that later. But um you know, I knew guys like him, that were just that quiet, so pulled n-word type, um, and I think that's what just kind of took my breath away when I watched the film. I was like, "Wow!" <laughs> you know, I know guys like this, but Ennis to me is such an interesting character because he is so so his self loathing is so intense, and when it comes out, it it comes out in violence and anger and sadness, of course, as well. And I think that journey that he takes in the film to the very last shot um, is truly remarkable. And
3: I think Ennis is a person who's used to the world, not making room for him or for there not being enough room for him to be himself. Like that's something that he says, well, I was with my brother and my sister until she got married and there wasn't any room there. And then my brother got married. There wasn't any room there. And so it's like, he's used to life being that way for him, for there not being enough room for him to just be, I mean, He's pulled in on himself. His shoulders are slumped a lot, you know, with his head down and just trying to take up his little room in society and in other people's lives, even his family's life as, as possible. And even how there's a weariness to him. A lot of times there's a heaviness to him. He kind of shuffles definitely as, as the film goes on, you know, and as, as he's trying to make his life work and trying to be okay with, with where things are, you just kind of feel that, but there's something so heartbreaking about him. And I feel like you can't help, but love him. I mean, he says probably no more than two hundred words this whole movie, but there's so much communicated through Ennis, and just so much that you you pick up on him, and a lot of that is because of of uh, Heath Ledger's portrayal, which we'll you know discuss later, like you said, because I also won't make it. <laughs> but uh, and so I told Aaron and Danelle earlier that I rewatched the movie again today and was kind of in some emotional turmoil, <laughs> but um, but yeah, just to see. You know, to see him who who comes to this, who wakes up to this truth about himself on this mountain with this guy. And he was supposed to be there just doing some work to earn some money and then to watch him go through. I can't get away with that from that, but I don't know what to do with that uh, and to try to just continue to move forward because of the traumas that he's witnessed and what he's always been told and what he's always believed and trying to reconcile that within himself, but not having the tools to do so, not having the support system to do so. Yeah. He's just a very heartbreaking character, but you can't help but love him. Yeah. 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 He's very,
1: uh, you know, he's a very sad and lonely and withdrawn and not just because he's quiet. He's just very withdrawn and drawn into himself. And he has so much self-loathing and self-hatred and he doesn't know how to fit into the world And from a very young age, you know, he was he tells the story about when he was a little boy and how his dad took him out to see somebody who was beaten to death because of the fact that they were living with another man out on a ranch and how he even thinks his father may have done it. So he has this ingrained in him that any of these feelings that he's having, any of these any sexuality, everything like that, that he must be a straight man who marries a woman and has kids. And that's the only way that you can be quote unquote normal because he's had it ingrained in him since he was a little kid, that if you're not, you're going to die and you're going to be murdered and you will deserve it. And like he said, he, you know, he wouldn't be surprised if it was his dad who killed the man. So it's just, it's very sad because so much of his self-hatred is also wrapped up in the fact that he hates his who he he hates being gay and that's he's a gay man and he doesn't understand that and he doesn't know how to deal with that and not only is he living in a very conservative town but he's also in the 60s and when it starts and then all the way up to like i think it's like 70s late 70s 80s and he's living in this time period where it's literally not legal to be gay and where you could anywhere you are you can be attacked and killed and murdered and bashed and everything can happen to you and then he meets this guy who is just so free or appears very free to ennis he's extremely more open he's uh, gregarious he's you know he's like very loud and talkative and has no shame and he challenges Ennis. And this is the first time that he is, at least from my guess, and the only time really that he is intimate with a man in a, very, in a way that he had never been intimate with a man before, but that he probably always had been. And I think it comes as a complete shock and surprise to him, even though I think it's there from the moment he first sees Jack. But I think the fact that it happens is a total shock to him. And the fact that Jack wants him And, but he can never, ever, ever get to the point where he's like, it's okay to not hide this, where he doesn't want to live in shame. And he has moments where, like, when he sees Jack for the first time after their whole work assignment had ended, and he sees Jack and he hugs Jack, and then, of course, he pulls Jack aside and kisses him, like, passionately kisses him, like, with all this desperation and all this sorrow and all this like loss and he's missing him so much and it's like finally he can smile a little bit because he bar- barely smiles in this movie except usually if it has to do with Jack. That's usually when you'll see him smile and just that moment for him of like this relief of I'm finally back with you and it's the one moment where you see he kind of lets his guard down and he shows some affection that easily and was he doesn't know that but easily could be caught And not secret, because they're not up on Brokeback Mountain. They're out in public. And it's a really, really amazing scene. And I feel for him a lot because he could have had some happiness, but he couldn't do it. He just couldn't allow himself to do that because Jack wants to. Jack wants to go and get a farm together. And you learn he's even talked about that to his parents uh, later on and But he just couldn't do that. And you understand, I never had any feeling of like, oh, just just come out already. You understand that wasn't an easy thing to do at that time. And especially where he is and the cultural he's living in and the way he's been brought up. That's not going to be an easy thing to do. Plus, you know, he might lose, never get to see his kids again, which he also has a very strained relationship with his daughters, even though you see him more with his older daughter, he still has a strained relationship there because he's never been able to be fully himself. And it's just, he's just a tragic, tragic character. When we talked about Moonlight on our live stream and then the episode that aired a couple days ago, it's interesting when I watched that and then watching Brokeback Mountain because they're very similar in some ways where the character of Chiron is very similar to Ennis And the character of Kevin is very similar to the character of Jack in a lot of ways. And that's also a tragedy because of the fact that Moonlight takes place in more present day and Brokeback Mountain doesn't. So it shows you that there is still a lot of that instilled homophobia. There's still a lot of that fear of being who you really are. And so it's just it's it's very tragic. So I know we're starting out our celebration with two very heavy, 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 heavy movies. But yeah, but okay. So let's get to Jack Twist, played by Jake Gyllenhaal, who everybody knows I love Jake Gyllenhaal. Uh,
2: (laughs) So what are your thoughts on Jack,
1: Danelle?
2: Jack is such a fun character, I think, in a lot of ways. Um, You know, he kind of comes in just with this energy, you know, that's just kind of almost a little bit of opposite, right? (laughs) of Ennis, Ennis is so pulled in, you know, even the way he talks is just so pulled in and Jack is a lot more free. And that's something that was always, you know, struck me, you know, his kind of youthful, like, Hey, it's all going to be okay. Let's just have a good time. And, you know, that kind of attitude. But I think there's still a wariness with him too, you know, and I think that comes with him, him having more of a grasp on who he is. You know, and this had no clue, but I think Jack already knew who he was at that point. <laughs> you know, and I, and I think you kind of get hints of that um, before they ever go up to Brokeback Mountain. So, you know, and, and Jack's willingness to live a double life and be okay with it, you know, when he marries Laureen and has his son Bobby, and he just seems kind of okay with it. You know, it is what it is. And, you know, even to the point where he finally stands up to his father-in-law, which is one of my favorite scenes, I think is hysterical. You know, uh, I think that that shows the, the correlation. I think he kind of comes to terms with this is how I have to be. But as long as I have Ennis, I'm okay. As long as I have that refuge, I can do this. You know, and I think that's, uh, to me, that seems to be his mindset where Ennis is so so lost within how who he is and really can't live that double life.
3: Just isn't capable. So. And Isha. So I wanted to start by saying. Kind of what you were saying earlier Aaron. I do see that. Some of that weariness comes off of. Ennis when he is ar- around Jack. And that is when we see him. Where he looks truly happy. And truly like himself. And I mm-hmm. think that's because. Now going into to Jack. It's because of. He is so full of ideas and possibility. And he is. So he so easily falls into what what they have there. You know, I do think from the very moment that they saw each other, it was like uh, for Ennis, it was like, oh, this could be a problem. And for Jack, it was like, oh, this will be interesting, you know. Uh, and so he what you were saying, he is so comfortable with that idea, and with that side of himself. And even though he knows that he has to shelve some of it and hide some of it, he's comfortable knowing that that part of him least, more comfortable knowing that that part of him exists, you know, that he is a gay man. I do think that he is more of the the upbeat character, but I don't want to get lost in that because this is a very tragic story for him as well because he has the ability to move on from it. It's just, to a certain extent, I think. And he finds when he has to because of some physical need or whatever, he he does that. But then later on when he meets the other guy, he's like, okay, maybe this could be something. Maybe not what I want, but this could be something. He has the the ability to move on, but he, but he just, he can't do it because he is so deeply connected to, to Ennis. He he just can't do it. So it's a tragic story for Jack as well, but I did definitely notice that, that he is, it's easier for him to say, okay, here's uh, Lorraine. (laughs) Say that right? Uh, Yeah. Here's Lorraine. And okay, that could work. You know, that could be some, some nice middle ground for me. And I could have a stable life there with her. And she's, she's uh attractive enough she's sweet enough like we can come to an understanding which is kind of what they get to whether they <laughs> do that intentionally or not uh he's comfortable with that understanding and then having initially then having what little moments he can get with Ennis but he starts to crave more because I think that's the kind of person that he is like he can't just subsist on the crumbs like uh like Ennis can and but yeah just yeah another beautiful character um just from a slightly different angle.
1: Yeah, I, uh, I think, you know, I think as gregarious as he is and as open as he is, he's also very sad and lonely and his marriage is not good. I, you know, that's the thing is I don't think he's happy at all. I, I think for like about five minutes when he first meets her and the fact that she is, cause he does, he works in rodeo and that's what he really loves and wants to do. And she works in that too at first. And so I think for him, he was like, okay, well, this can work because we're kind of the same. We might be similar. Maybe we'll get along. But you see, as the years progress, how unhappy they both are. And we'll be talking about the wives in a second because I think Lorraine becomes this very ice ice cold person. I mean, she's just cold. And you see that. I think it's funny that the blonder her hair gets, the colder she gets. I don't know if that was done on purpose or not, but to me it feels very purposeful. But so even though he's like, okay, I can settle with this. I never, ever, ever thought of it as he was happy with the situation. Cause he's not, he is. I mean, he even has the scene that of course has the most famous line from the movie. I wish I could quit you. I mean, everybody knows that line, even if you haven't seen the movie and, I think what that comes from is he wants so much more and he's been feeling like this secret, this dirty little secret that Ennis is keeping and he wants more than that. He wants to be able to have that cushy life and have that person that loves him and that person be okay with saying they love him and he is afraid, but he's not afraid to actually come out and be who he is and, I think his parents know who he is. I think his dad hates who he is. And I think his mom doesn't. I think his mom actually had some love for it, for her son in a way that his dad didn't. And so even though he had that, it seemed like he probably grew up in a household where there wasn't a lot of outward affection, especially from his father. But he's able to sort of find that um, with Ennis, and he's able to find that with just kind of search- searching out for other people, and eventually with the um, other guy whose name I can't remember. I don't know if they even say it, but it's played by David Harbour, who I love David Harbour. And I forgot completely. I think it's Randall. Okay, thank you. Yeah, I forgot he was even in this movie until I was rewatching it. And I'm like, oh my gosh, it's David Harbour, <laughs> because nobody really knew him then anyway. <laughs> But I think he kind of just went, okay, if I'm not going to have it with Ennis, and this guy is interested, and this guy's actually going to leave his wife for me, which you find out later when um, when S goes goes to Jack's parents' house after Jack is murdered, and you find out that he had sort of been like, okay, well, actually, I'm coming up with this guy instead, and not with Ennis to fix up the ranch and to live my happy life that I've been dreaming of, and I think for Ennis that was so like a gut punch because it's like, okay, wait, I thought I was the only guy he was doing this with. Like, Ennis doesn't care that Jack sleeps with women. Doesn't care about that at all. He just wants to be the only man he's sleeping with because he, I think because he wants it to seem like it's this special thing that only the two of them do. And maybe it makes him feel like, oh, okay, I'm not really gay. This is just this thing that I'm experimenting with. Um, and I think as far as Jack's sexuality, you know, it's never, ever said, I think if this movie had been made today. I mean, granted, it's not that old of a new movie, but still, I think they might've been more open with saying maybe he was pan or maybe he was Bi. I think for this, they're kind of just saying he's a gay man, but yeah. Yeah. I, I think even though he is a very, he's a lot more, it's a lot more humor and he's a lot more open. I think you see him become more and more bitter and more depressed and more angry And you get hints that maybe he was an alcoholic and drank all the time to kind of cover up that pain. And then, of course, he's brutally murdered and his ashes don't get to be spread where he wanted his ashes to be spread, which was on Brokeback Mountain. And that's even more tragic that he didn't actually get his final wish, because I think the people in his life knew what he was doing when he would go and meet Ennis Every for their fishing and hunting trips and so both these characters do marry women and one of the marriages the first one we're talk about does end in divorce so i want to talk about these two women first let's talk about alma who's ennis's wife played by the amazing michelle williams so what were your thoughts on this character know?
2: alma is such a to me probably one of the more she's so tragic they all are but Alma is such a, a heartbreaking character, I think, because I think she truly, truly loved Ennis, you know, and she kind of was so wide eyed and young and you know, kind of went into the marriage thinking, you know, I'm in, you know, that small town, you know, life and and wanting to to have kids and you know, live this life with this man that she loved. And um, you know, from the the first time she catch, you know, when she sees um, Jack and Ennis kissing when she walks out and sees or opens the door and sees that from that moment. I think that just breaks her. And she doesn't know what to do with that. <clears throat> you know, being in that time period and, you know, not having the, I guess, the, the assertion, you know, knowing how to take care of herself and the kids and what was she going to do in that situation. Um, she stays for as long as she can. You know, um, so yeah, I definitely feel for for Alma, you know, and and I think she's a victim of of the tragedy. You know that that Ennis couldn't be who he is, and neither could Jack. And I think she's a victim in that. But she, you know, but she also kind of repeats her patterns. I mean, there's hints right at the man that she that she's with after the divorce. I mean, there's a hint that he's the caterer. He's going to be a caterer. Of the daughter's wedding, and I'm kind of wondering. And I mean, again, this is stereotyping, but I'm kind of wondering if she's put herself in a similar situation with a closeted man. Not that men, but because men, honestly, in those time periods, them being cooks was not a a common thing. So I'm just curious to see. We didn't see a lot about it, but just seeing the little bit of him, who he was at the dinner table, and how he was with the family, I'm just kind of wondering if she just kind of went to try to go to the opposite. Of Ennis's persona of being this really tough cowboy to somebody who wasn't that way. And was he really, you know, I we never get to see really what happens with Alma after that. Um, if she's truly gonna be happy with this guy. Um, and I can't remember his name.
1: Look it up here, but huh, I never thought of that. I never ever that never even that's interesting. Yeah,
2: I picked that up when I rewatched last night. I was I like, that's interesting that. that the daughter would say, Oh, he's gonna cater
1: it. Yes, yeah, I didn't think of that right. as like that means he's in the closet. I never ever yeah. thought that. I was just like, because I, I could thought, be
2: <laughs> yeah, I could
3: what, be it's interesting.
1: On yeah, I'm just trying. Yeah. So, what are your what are your thoughts on her? Michelle?
3: Uh, you know, when we meet Ennis, this relationship with Alma is already in progress, and so we don't know what it is that drew them to each other. But this is always already in progress. But then when we meet her, it's like, okay, well, she's a little bit more meek, a little bit more homely, and probably something that's just kind of easier for him to, to be with. And I think that she's aware of his emotional shortcomings, but she kind of compensates for that by his steady presence and him being, I guess, not very problematic and being a, a provider, because he makes the comment the first time that they're up on the mountain to Jack that it's something to the effect of I haven't had much time for sin or something like that. So he's just, you know, he's been pretty much what you see is what you get. And so I think that that was easy for her and she could kind of depend on that. I think that also she's kind of interesting because she is a bit of a victim here in, in a way, you know, her husband is living this this double life and she sees it where he lies to her. I mean, and he, you know, after they have that reunion and that, that hug and they share that kiss, which is a, a beautiful and a great moment. She walks in on that, of course. Well, she sees that, of course. And um, she's kind of trying, you know, taking him back and trying to deal with that. And he comes in, he's like, okay, we're going off fishing for a couple days. And then there's this energy to him that she does not recognize. Mm-hmm. I'm sure, you know, even with the kids, he does like somewhat, like he loves his, his daughters, but there's not that energy there and that excitement for life there. And so she sees that and then she saw him kissing a man and then you're going off with him. And then like, as the years go on, while they're still married, you know, he's still continuing to go see that. And now she knows what this fishing trip means. And so she is a bit of a victim, but there's some homophobia from her too. You know, where she's like, when she does mm-hmm. confront him about what happens and she says, you know, Jack twists more like Jack nasty. And she's saying, I know what, what's going on with you and you should be ashamed of yourself. and she just throws more of that hatred on him that he's been afraid of. And so from that, from that time that she confronts him on that, that's when he goes to Jack and he's like, do you ever feel like you're walking somewhere and people look at you and they just know, you know? And so she was one of the, even if she, she might've been speaking from her own pain that she experienced firsthand from, from his secret, but um, the way that she handled it just kind of compounded his, his issues, you know? And um, but she does have some some of a backbone because after a while she's like, I'm not going to put up with that, you know. And and so she does leave, which was probably the best thing for both of them, because we saw over time how she just got more bitter and more angry and more vicious. And the kids were kind of just hung in the middle of that. So I think that was a well drawn character. Unfortunately, we don't get to see much of her side of, of some things. But because she wasn't the central focus of of the show, I'll say with of the movie, I'll say with what we what we got of her, she was fairly well drawn. Yeah. She, she
1: definitely is another tragic character who she wants so desperately to connect with her husband. And I think she definitely loves him and is in love with him and desires him. And you see like in the scene where pretty much right before the marriage right before you see that they're getting divorced and she wants to have sex with Ennis and he's, and she's like, but I don't want to have any more children. And so she's making sure it's going to be okay. He's like, well, if you don't want to have any more of my children, then I am i have no use for you. Pretty much I'm done. I have no use for you. I, I could just be done with this. We don't have to do this. I don't, you know, we don't have to be intimate anymore. And she already knows at that point that she is intimate with Jack. And so I think for her, that was just like the last straw for her. That was like the last punch where she's like, okay, he's not even going to be intimate with me. I can get this from Monroe is his name. Yeah the guy she does end up with, you know, I can get it from him or I can't be with this guy anymore. And she's already so angry at him. I think she has a lot of anger at him when she discovers what he, who he is. And when she sees him kissing Jack, because there's also, you know, he's cheating on her is part of it. And then also the fact that there is also that homophobia there There's also the fact that the fear there, there's also the fact that, okay, I've been living with this man who's been lying to me this whole time. And I'm living with this man who never seems happy when he's with me. He's got so much pent up anger, like this scene on 4th of July where they go to the fireworks and he like wants to like attack and beat up those guys who are just disgusting guys. But he's like, she's like, just leave it. And he doesn't want to because he's got so much anger in him. And so she's seen that for most of their marriage, for most of the time they've been together, who knows, probably before when they were even, when he was courting her, probably the same kind of thing. And then to see that kind of just vanish the second he sees Jack and see him be excited and he's even walking faster and he's talking faster and he's just like, oh, I'm going fishing. I'm going fishing. This is going to be so exciting. And and just to know, and then she knows already because she's seen them kiss that oh my gosh, he's finding this happiness that I want to find with him, that I want him to find with me, with somebody else. And on top of that, because of the time period and because she's got her own homophobia in her, on top of that, it's with a man, it's just like even more of a blow to her. And so I think from that moment on, you see her kind of just kind of this downfall of her becoming angrier and angrier. And you don't see her really much at all, except for during that Thanksgiving dinner. But you don't really see her much at all after they get divorced. So she's kind of just, you know, kind of left his life. And I don't know if she's happier, but I think I think she always has this lingering anger and regret and hatred towards him because of what he what she perceived he did to her. So, yeah, and, and I know I'm sure that because this happens a lot where there are women who are married to men and men married to women and don't know their sexuality. And then it comes out later. And I'm sure for that person who doesn't know and ends up finding out, I'm sure there is a lot of a lot of heartbreak in a very different way, possibly just because this person has not been the person you thought they were. And they've been hiding such a deep a part of themselves and. Were they using you to be able to be okay and accepted in the world? And so you've also got that on top of it. So I'm sure it was just a very, very painful realization for her on many, many levels, not just one level of him cheating on her. So yeah, she's she's another tragic character as well. Okay, so let's move on to Jack's wife, Lorraine, who is played, of course, by Anne Hathaway. So what are your thoughts on her, Danelle
2: Um, Yeah, I think we kind of touched on her a little bit earlier. And I think it's true. She definitely becomes the ice queen, you know, for she's this young, optimistic, you know, kind of bubbly, really outgoing, kind of matches Jack's energy. Kind of like you said earlier, they're, they're a good match if they were both heterosexual. But I think they would have been a good match, you know. And you can see that they have a friendship for a while. You know, like there's a friendship there. Not only do they become... Uh, married, but I think there is a true genuine caring or friendship at first. But like you said, I think Jack's needs, right, Jack being who he is and what he needs out of a relationship, he can't get that with Lorraine. He's never going to get that with her. And I think that turns her bitter and angry, you know, just like it did um, Elma, you know. I think both these women are kind of victims of that circumstance just as much as the men are, you know. Um, they're victims of the circumstance, the time, and homophobia, <laughs> you know, in general, and and just what that means. And, you know, as her hair gets blonder, like you said, I think she just becomes angrier and, and more bitter. That final scene, you know, where she's on the phone with Jack, I think is a really great testament. And I read something really interesting last night. They never really reveal if Jack, how Jack was killed, right? I mean, we always kind of assume that he was murdered. that flashback scene as Ennis's but do you know one thing that Anne Hathaway I I saw she had a quote where Ang Lee shot it two different ways shot it with her knowing what happened um that he was you know both ways basically and so in her mind she said she never really it's never really revealed in her mind um how Jack was killed. So to me, I I don't know if it's really clear, if it really was an accident, as she states, if she's covering up the truth, or if it's in Ennis's head because of what he witnessed as a kid, you know, if he's imagining that she's just telling him that. So I think that's a tragedy there too, you know, like what happened. Um, But Lorene's bitterness comes through so clearly over the phone and um, her disappointment, right, for the life that she wanted I think, with Jack, but I, I think there's moments where he truly still tries to be the man that she wants. I mean, especially when she stands up when he stands up to her father, which I think at the Thanksgiving scene is great because she kind of has a smile, like then you know she looks at her son like, mm-hmm. you saw what your dad just did. I've always thought that was a great scene because I think it shows that he was still trying, you know, and I think Lorraine was still trying at some point, but you know, I think they just kind of settled into this, well, we'll just kind of do our own thing and not ask each other about what's going on. So I just wonder if she was having her own little side (laughs) thing going on. I'm wondering if she was with somebody else at that point. I think it'd be interesting to explore that actually.
3: Yeah, and Michelle. You know, I first of all, I think her wigs should be like their own character. (laughs) There, are such extreme styles. Uh, but you know, with Laureen, I I definitely I don't think it was a happy marriage. I think after a certain point they got into like this business relationship that works. I mean, he talks about her doing the numbers, she talks about him being the best salesman that they have, and so that's what I think that's what it became. I'm not sure when she would have figured that out. They don't spell that out for us. We don't really get to see that, but you can pick up through all the subtleties that she knows uh, she definitely suspects, but probably she knows what, um, you know, what, what's really going on with him. And when he steals away, she knows what what's going on there. To me, I think it's very interesting the way these two women in their own ways, turn blind eyes to, to the truth that they know and how, you know, like I said earlier for Alma, she can only do that for a certain time. You know, definitely when it gets to where, you know, she's just so upset because, like you said, Aaron, you're denying me this one other thing. Uh, but for Lorena, just kind of, and I think that's probably to do with some of their upbringing, <laughs> with her with her upbringing, you know, and where she just lives in a time where women, that's what women do. They, they, they turn a blind eye as long as the man is providing the money. And as long as, you know, the house is still standing and the kids are fed and in school, then, you know, they just turn a blind eye to it, whether it's with another woman or with another man. But also there's the issue of her father's treatment of of Jack and she never she never really stands up for him for Jack in that and I guess she doesn't know her place I'm not really sure what it is why she doesn't do that and she's but you can see that little grin on her face where she is amused when he finally does it for himself but she never inter um intervenes there so that's another interesting layer to her into their into their marriage that that arrangement that they have and that last phone call. I just imagined like to be talking to the man that, you know, that for years, your husband has stolen away to go see. And, uh, you know, he's like, he'll drive 14 hours one way to go and see this guy several times a year. And he wants to pack the right clothing every time he goes. And this is always a priority, always on his calendar and to be talking to him and having to tell him how your husband died. Like and the way she held it together there, it almost gives me like this wasp, (laughs) you know, uh, kind of uh kind of feel or whatever but yeah just a lot that that she carried and yeah she does have her own bitterness and her own aggression but it comes out in a different way just because she's a, she's a different woman but yeah i think that they have settled into something that whether she's okay with it or not it's just it is what it is and this is what this is what her marriage is they both know that it's not anything super loving or intimate or warm and fuzzy but it is what it is and yeah, she busies herself with other things. So I think she kind of had a life outside of, of Jack. First, um, I mean, she you know she did the rodeos and then she worked for her father's company. So she kind of had a life outside of that, and so didn't have to make her life around being wife and mom like Ennis's wife did. Yeah, but I think she's a great she's a great character. Anne Hathaway did a did a great job with her.
1: Yeah, she's an interesting character to see alongside. Alma, because even though you see Alma get angry and, you know, upset and hurt, you never see her turn as ice cold. As you see, (laughs) Lorraine is just, she's ice cold in the scene where they're at a dance or, um, and she's sitting there and that's the time when you first meet David Harbour's character and his wife who doesn't stop talking ever. And you see how bitter and cold, um, Lorraine is at that po- point and she's just so like she has no respect for her husband at all except for that he's a good businessman and that's it and you can tell she doesn't even have to say anything you can just tell that she has no respect for her husband at that point point. and the conversation that she has with Ennis when they're talking about Jack's death watching her and watching Anne Hathaway in that moment and that performance and like we have said a million times on this podcast watching her eyes and how all the expressions in her eyes that go on and there's this moment where uh you know when they're talking about Brokeback Mountain and a little bit and talking about how that's where he had said he wanted his his ashes to be and she didn't know where that was and how Ennis kind of says well I know where that is and we used to go up there and moment of like, basically without saying it, saying that was our special place. That was our place. And she, and she's realizing that's why she, he wants his ashes spread there. You see her kind of, you see tears come in her eyes, but she doesn't actually cry. And it's like, she has become so ice cold that she's been able to kind of just push down those tears and push down that emotion, but you know, it's there. And I always have imagined, cause you don't really see it But I've always imagined that after she hung up the phone and a few seconds after that, if she was alone, that she gave herself this moment to just fall apart. And she just broke down a little bit. And then she just instantly pull herself together and be like, oh, no, no. Back to being the cold woman that I am. Uh, But it's a very interesting character because she she's a very she's an easy character, I think, for for the audience to hate and to really loathe. But at the same time. There is a part of you, at least for me, that feels for her. I don't necessarily like her, but I feel for her because I think she had all this hope and all these dreams and her dreams and her hopes were also crushed through life. She didn't want to be working in her father's business. She wanted to be doing the rodeo stuff. You know, she this wasn't her dream. She's not living her dream life either. And you never see their kid. Never and except for the time it's a baby, but you never see their kid at that I can remember. I'm like uh, and I just watch it, but I don't think you ever really see their son. Yeah. It's yeah, like just like the Thanksgiving dinner other-
2: dinner, right? Like that's the only other time you see. I think Bobby. Bobby is his name. Yeah.
1: Yeah. You don't ever really it's kind of like he's like this I don't know. I kind of feel bad for that because it feels like Bobby is kind of pushed his, I think all the children feel kind of like afterthoughts honestly. And I think it's just because all their parents are unhappy. Every single parent in this movie is living a very unhappy, unfulfilled life and they're not living their best lives. So to say, so to speak.
3: Yeah. I think you said something important, Erin, that uh it is easy to, um to hate the women, you know, but, but they didn't sign up for that. I mean, they both fell in love with these men and married them and to find out, mm-hmm you have a whole nother life with, with somebody or someone you'd rather be with. And if society was different, you probably would be with them. Uh, and so I think, you know, to some extent, I mean, of course you're responsible for how you react to things, but to a certain, to a certain extent, they have every right to be, to be upset.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: Yeah, totally. Yeah, they definitely do. I mean, I think, well, and we, you know, I keep going back to that. It's the time period too, but women of that age, were born in their 40s, right? These women were born in the 1940s and got married in the 1960s. They they were taught, you know, the man is the head of the house and the man is the one who leads. And you stand by your man, you stay married, you know, like all of those values that they were they were taught. And I think that they felt trapped in that. And I think that's where the bitterness and angriness comes from, especially I think with um well with both of them, but with lorena in particular, I see that you know, at the dance scene. Like you said, she, when she's like, why are the men never wanna dance with their, our husbands never wanna dance with their wives, you know? Like, mm-hmm. it's just this very flippant kind of smart-alecky comment that she makes. And I think there's it's very loaded, right? Um, there's a lot of double entendre in that. in that, And, um, you know, and I, I think that's why he kind of pushes back by asking uh, yeah. The the woman to dance, you know. By the way, which was Anna Ferris I yeah. had to look at that like five times. I was yeah. like, "Whoa, that blew my mind." I did not remember that she was in that movie. So, yeah, yeah, she was hysterical. I mean, such a fun little part, right? For that yeah. little for that character
1: was just kind of fun. So, yeah, never stop talking, <laughs> right? constantly. That that would drive me nuts, though. That would be really. Hard like okay let's stop talking (laughs) uh yeah yeah i just i mean once again i think i can't think of a single character really here that isn't tragic i do think alma jr i do think that she has the potential to not be a tragic character and i think she i honestly think she actually knows who her dad is i -hmm. think she knows who he is and wants him to be happy and i think when she sees her dad moving on with another woman and courting another woman, I think there's a part of her that even though she hates it because of the fact that, you know, that whole thing of like, Oh, this isn't my mom. And also you're taking up time with me and I can't be with you. If you're going to be with this woman, I think there's also a part of her that honestly knows who her dad is and has always known and wants him to be himself. I don't know. That's the way I've always read that character. But she's also just loves her dad a lot, and just wishes her dad could be happy.
3: So. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Even if she doesn't know that, even if she doesn't know or want him to be with a man, I think she wants him to just be able to be himself and be happy. You know, mm-hmm. uh, at the very least, and she doesn't want him to. She doesn't want him to pretend to be something else. Is is what I think for sure.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love how she's like like her dad. I love how she's like Ennis. You know, mm-hmm. you kind of see the, the, the kind of resemblance there, you know, when she first meets uh, the, the waitress that he's dating and they're having that conversation and she barely can get out a few words <laughs> and you can see the waitress going, okay, yep. You're just like your dad, <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah. And you see that in their, their relationship, you know, when she comes over to tell her father that she's get, that, when she's getting married and, you know, um, like you said, I think she's always known who he is. And I think she's trying to say, when he asks her, "Are is she happy?" You know, mm-hmm. that's such a loaded question for him and for her, I think. And I think when she says, "Yeah, Daddy, I am," you know, I think she's trying to give him permission to finally be happy himself, to be who he is. I think she's trying to say, "Yeah, I am," because I'm being who I want to. You know, this is what I want, yeah. and you can do that too, in a way. I just, I don't know why I just got that energy when I watched that about scene last night, and I was like, "Wow." I missed that yeah. the first time, but so that was really powerful. That yeah. conversation between the
3: two of them. You know, yeah. Cassie, the one he ends up dating, she's another person who's hurt by, you know, Ennis's lies and by his self hatred oh, yeah. and and all that. You know, cause she fell in love with him, and she says, you know, girls don't fall in love with fun. Like she fell in love with him as a person, and he had no intention of reciprocating that. You know, um, yeah, nothing against her. He just. He couldn't. So, yeah,
2: yeah. That conversation was really, really intense to watch too. When she confronts him in the restaurant and the diner, and you know he's gotten so bitter himself at that point. He's just like kind of blowing it off. But when she says that to him and walks away, I think he finally's taking it in. He's finally looking at the wreckage that he caused. And of course, it's tragic. He could. He's his self hatred. He couldn't be who he he was. Um, But he doesn't, I don't think up until then, he was truly understanding the wreckage that he had been causing, you know, not only in his own life, but his children and the women that he was, you know, in the women that were in his life.
3: Yeah, I think that's what, and I don't want to jump again if we're going to talk about this more, but I think that's what pushes him to, then he's like, okay, well, I'll just truly be alone then, you know, like I won't even try to force anything, like maybe it's better if I just truly accept that. I'm I'm just going to be alone.
1: Mhm. Yeah, I think that's part of it and I think yeah, I w- I want to talk about that. Before we talk about the legacy of this film and the impact it had and um the fact that it still should should have won the Academy Award for best picture, but <laughs> anyway, <laughs> uh but before we get in before we get into that, I just want to just briefly touch on the fact that that ending because in the end you see him he's living in a trailer by himself. And he still has that shirt of Jack's that he took from um, Jack's home, from his parents' home. And he still has it. And, of course, he has it hanging up like almost like an altar. And he has like a postcard picture of Brokeback Mountain right next to there. And, you know, of course, he says, Jack, I swear. And then that's the end of the movie. Pretty much. That's the last end of the movie. And what did you think the ending was trying to say? Or where do you think? He ended up to know
2: so two things i took away from that um one of the things that stood out is when he goes to jack's parents house and he finds the shirts and if you if you notice it was the blue shirt was on the outside and his shirt was on the inside and he reverses them Mm -hmm. and i think that's significant because i think in its way in his own mind it was just you know his way of kind of embracing Jack still finally, or I should say finally, right? Finally trying, truly embracing that relationship and what it really meant to him and that he was the love of his life and having that shine to him. And when he says, I swear, I think he really is saying, I wish I would've, I swear I would've, I swear I would've, I would change it. I would, I would do what you wanted, you know, and have the farm together and, and try to try to make it work. You know, I really do think that that's what he was saying at the end. Because when his daughter, when he starts to kind of blow off his own daughter's wedding, and I remember when he starts to say that, I'm like, "Are you kidding me? Like, are you not going to do <laughs> that to her?" And then he changes his mind. Right? He's like, "I think that's him finally starting to let go." I don't know how willing, you know, we never see right what happens from after that. I don't know how much he's going to be able to let go, but the fact that he's gonna put his daughter first for the first time, in a way, you know, like, commit. (laughs) Um, I think that's another step for him. And I think when he says, I swear, I think he realizes that that's that's a step for him. Mm -hmm. So for me, that's what it meant. I mean, obviously it's, you know, tragic. um, But at the same time, I think it's a step forward for him.
3: Yeah,
1: yeah, and it
3: shall. I think, it's what what you said, like now he's the one holding on, you know, he put his shirt on now it's like cause now he's the one holding on to Jack and to what they had. And unfortunately it's too late. But I think when he says that, you know, Jack, I swear it's, it's that, you know, you still got a hold on me and I'm still every bit as wrapped up in this. I want to say that he's still every bit as in love with him as he was before. And, mm-hmm. and I think in that, even though there's love in that, there's some anger in that too, because it's like, how dare you come in and make me feel something, make me accept things that I tried to deny and push away and avoid. Uh, And how dare you come in and do that? How dare you come in and make me, make me want you and need you and and love you. And then in this situation that seems so hopeless um, and then for you to be gone, you know, and I can't, I can't change any of it. And I think, I think part of him would like to and would want to, but another part of him probably knows that he, that he couldn't or he wouldn't. And so I think it's just all of that wrapped up in that that I swear. It's like everything that I, everything that's always been turmoil within me regarding you and myself and our relationship, it's still there. It's still as fresh as it was nearly 20 years ago. Or at least that's that's how I take it and, and what I get from it.
1: Yeah, it's a it's there's a lot of heartbreak and sadness and sorrow. But I think there is a part of Ennis that at this point, You know, the fact that he agrees to go to his daughter's wedding, the fact that he's like, yes, I'm going to go is a big step for him because he's not someone who's going to normally do that. And he's kind of decided he's going to live alone and he's going to be just repressed his whole life. And he's just going to distance himself from people as much as possible. So him finally deciding to do that is almost like he's making, I think some of the Jack, I swear, I think some of that is also, I promise to sort of try and live a life to try and live maybe for both of us. I, you know, and I'm not an optimistic person, but that's a little bit of an optimism there of feeling like the fact that he is making that step to be more open and be there for his daughter and be out there a little bit more. And uh yet at the same time i think i don't think it's going to be something where all of a sudden he's going to be like as outgoing as jack or all of a sudden he's going to be like embrace his sexuality no i don't he probably will never have another relationship in his life ever sadly but i do think he's at least going okay i i will try i will try to be better i will try to embrace a little of who you were jack and try and take that into my life because i loved you and you were the love of my life and I don't want your death to be in vain. So I think that's a lot of also what's going on there, but it could definitely be interpreted of a hundred million different ways. That's why I actually like the ending a lot. I think it leaves it up to the viewer to decide where you think he is, where you think he ended up. If you think he ever found someone again or never did, if you think he actually ended up going to the wedding or he ended up finding an excuse to not go again, because there's also that possibility uh, so, yeah, it's 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 a great and wonderful ending. I think it's sad, but it's still a perfect ending for the story. Um, it's still very tragic. And this whole story is a tragedy. And, you know, I do think that we need more stories in the LGBTQIA plus community that are also very hopeful stories. So while I love this movie and I love Moonlight and I think they're both masterpieces and they are both just incredible films with incredible performances and incredible direction. And they are important stories that need to be told. We also need to balance that out with some hopeful stories so that not every story that's told in that community is about tragedy. And there are stories that aren't about that. So I'm just, I'm just mentioning that really quickly because it is very striking now, especially watching those two movies almost back to back was a lot, <laughs> so, <laughs> a lot, a lot of emotion. Um, Okay. Well, before we get into Heath Ledger, cause like I said, that has to be the last thing or I won't be able to continue after that. Uh, let's talk about the legacy of this movie because this movie has been, there's been parodies, there's been jokes, there's been the lines are quoted all the time. Like I said, of course, I wish I knew how to quit you is like probably the most famous line from the whole movie. And, you know, there have sadly been homophobic jokes about this. Um, But it also, I think changed the landscape in a lot of ways. So what do you think the lasting impact is of this movie to know?
2: Yeah, no, I think that's a really important question because this movie did have a huge impact, huge impact. Um, And I think it was a catalyst for a lot of people to really have their eyes opened to the gay community and what that means. You know, I remember around that time still hearing people think, not able to equate, you know, a same sex relationship as equal to a uh, heterosexual relationship. And that really, quite frankly, ticked me off all the time. I would hear that crap. And I think people saw this movie and saw a genuine love affair you know, between a same sex couple, and realize that it's no different, you know, that love is love. And um, I I do remember hearing a lot of people really touched by that people who were homophobic or were not educated, right, just weren't fully educated seeing this movie and being like, whoa, you know, it changed them. Um, So I think that's a positive impact. There were a lot of I did hear a lot of the jokes and things like that and unfortunately it was used as a, a homophobic weapon at points i haven't heard it so much lately because the film's been around for a while now but that was hurtful too i remember hearing those jokes and just being really angry that people would turn such a, a beautiful tragic story you know into hate um and use it as a weapon but i i do think the legacy is that you know a lot of people's a lot of people it opens some minds you know it it definitely um, showed the the utter, I guess, <laughs> I'm not sure, the homophobia, especially in that community, right? And having grown up in that community it was really hard to watch. Um, one of the things to me that was really difficult about the film is, and I won't say the name of the town or I won't name names, but spending some formative years um, knowing people who are in the radio circuit um, somebody who's well-known in the radio circuit actually reminded me so much of of Jake Hall's character reminded me so much in fact he passed away a few years ago it's kind of hard to talk about but yeah I mean he was the embodiment of that character and I remember watching the film and and um, there were rumors and all that kind of stuff and yeah he was very much like him you know and that was modern. <laughs> that wasn't the nineteen sixties. We're talking, you know, in the nineties and two um, thousands. And um, you know, if he truly, truly was still closeted, um it's tragic. It's tragic that he felt he had to live that way. So I think for me that's why the movie had such an impact. Because I I knew I knew guys like him, you know, and I I knew their story and, and what it meant to be out in that. I mean, we grew up with Matthew Shepard in Wyoming, you know, with what happened to Matthew, and so it's it's still real. It's still there, and I think the legacy of this film is is to remind people that that it is still there, that that hate and and misunderstanding, I guess, is the big yeah. I, I don't know how else to describe it, but just not being informed or understanding that love is love, and hopefully we can take stories like this and move forward and remind people that it is just love is love. You know, I keep saying that, but that is the key and let people be who they are, you know, and um, embrace them for who they are. I mean, it'd be a really freaking boring world if everybody was the same, right? (laughs) Like that's the whole point of it. Mm -hmm. I love meeting people who are different in all various ways and forms. That's what makes life beautiful. You know, is the rainbow of people, so, you know, I think films like that remind me of that too, not just the sadness of it, you know, yeah. And we're also kind of reeling from just rewatching it, but, um, but that's what that's what speaks to the power of film too, and the power of the performances, the absolute power of the amazing performances and direction. So, mm-hmm. and it should have one best picture. Yes,
1: <laughs> that is a hill I will die on.
0: <laughs> yes, yes,
1: and I think. Yes. I think most yes. people agree on that, especially given what film did win. So it is yeah. very, very true. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And Michelle, what do you think the legacy is?
3: I think it has a very a complicated legacy, actually. And so it's kind of allowed me to stumble, <laughs> stumble my way through this. Bear with me. Uh, because on the one hand, like, I am ever grateful that a story featuring two men who are in this even secret relationship with each other that spans over 20 years. I think when the first time I, I watched it, I didn't realize it spans over nearly, nearly 20 years. Uh, but that, that was something that was mainstream. I think that's a really, a really big deal. And so I think for just mainstream culture, it was a, a giant, a giant leap. You know, I think for maybe the LGBTQ plus community, it might've just been like a small step because it didn't really do a whole lot with portraying, all of there is to just truly enjoying a a, a same sex relationship or a queer relationship or a gay relationship. And so I think that's one of the, the things that, you know, there there's kind of two sides to that coin or at least two sides to that, but uh, you know, it wasn't a sexually gratuitous film, but it didn't make them eunuchs. And so it, it, it kind of found somewhere in, in the middle there uh, because after that, that first, kind of encounter that they have and then after the reunion kiss like from then on they're just kind of talking and it's a lot of more tense moments, you know. And so mm-hmm. you kind of lose which which makes sense because it's getting to where this is getting harder for them to stay away from but try to incorporate into their life. So it totally makes sense. But um anyway, uh another thing I kind of hate what culture stole from it that it did turn it into a joke, you know. Um I hate the parts of, of culture that did not take it seriously, you know, that took you know that line I wish I could quit you like you know that was everywhere if that was today mm-hmm. that would be a meme or a TikTok video or whatever, but there was so much hurt and heartbreak and anguish in that when that line was delivered in that whole scene, you know um because of what they have been struggling with for all this time uh and I hate that society took it and, and did that with it, even though it's referred to as the gay cowboy movie, you know mm-hmm. uh so but i mean you know that's kind of what you're going to get in when you, when you deal with with mainstream society unfortunately but but i do i still want to say that i do feel like it was a a major moment a major moment and i do think it was an was uh, an advancement so i don't want to be totally negative but i just unfortunately i kind of have my eyes open to that other side of it and i can't i can't close that but i don't want to feel bad about still liking the movie and the story and Uh, you know, there is so much trauma porn when it comes to LGBTQ plus media. And I hate that the first major motion picture that was put out there ended that way, ended ended tragically like that. And there was so much tragedy the whole way through, you know, but the other side is negative feelings tend to stick with you longer. And so I think if it had like a positive, happy ending, that might've been harder for people who went in homophobic or went in kind of, fearful or unsure or uncertain or whatever it might have been a little bit harder for them to swallow that and so maybe by going having you know the first one out there be something with the sad ending kind of appeals to their humanity a little bit more I'm not sure so I don't know I'm sorry that probably none of that probably made no, sense, it makes I, perfect it, sense. I, I think it's complicated I still think mm-hmm. it was great I love the story but I just can't walk away from the complexity of it
1: no, it made it made a lot of sense. I know last year during our Pride Month, we did an episode um, about queer baiting and also negative and positive representation in film and TV and stuff. And I know when we did our queer baiting episode, this movie was actually brought up, which is very interesting because of the fact that, you know, you do have them actually having a relationship. But I think it was brought up in the fact that a lot of times you will see, and you still see it today, you will see people will be in maybe a happy relationship and then one person dies or is murdered. And it happens a lot. And it happened. I know there was a show on the CW called the 100 that I never watched, but it happened on that show. And I know when that happened, it was very heartbreaking and hurtful to the community. And I know, a lot of people stopped watching that show. People were tweeting out at the showrunner and all that stuff. So I think it is important to examine that because even though this is, I think an amazing movie and a really good movie. um, I do think sometimes that tragedy is focused on too much when there are movies that are part of that, especially if they are more mainstream movies. I think you can have movies that are more independent where it's not like that. I mean, there's this, wonderful rom-com called all over the guy, which I don't know if either one of you have seen this movie and it is a rom-com between two men. And it's like, it's so good. I see you writing it down and it's really funny and it's sweet and it's very much it's very typical rom-com except it's got two men and it's very much, you know, got the man who doesn't, want to commit and settle down. And then you've got the man that all he wants is a relationship and you have them have this push pull, and they first, they hate each other and then they end up friends and then, you know, it grows from there. And so it's very much plays into all the romantic tropes, romantic comedy tropes, but instead you've got two men, which was just amazing. And while there are some sad parts in the movie, it's not a tragedy. It's not like something where it is saying, if you are gay, you will ultimately be punished. And I think that's a lot of what some, the harm that can be done when you have a lot of movies that are, that are like this and they end in tragedy. I think even though Moonlight is a very tragic movie and there's a lot of sorrow, that one actually has a pretty beautiful and hopeful ending to it. And I think you kind of have to do that now, I think sometimes, but of course that's a very independent movie too, even though it won the best picture. Which brings me to the Academy Award thing. You have a lot of people embracing this movie when it came out. You had, of course, people who were perhaps homophobic, which I want to say, I think actually this movie is made more for a straight audience than it is made for an LGBT.
3: Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I think it's like a a queer movie for a straight audience. Yes,
1: it's like here that you might be able to handle this one.
2: (laughs) Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I, There was an audible gasp, though, because I, I'm totally an Oscar fiend, right? Like, it's a, it should be a national holiday, mm-hmm. as far as I'm concerned. Um, I love to do the, the Oscar party. And I do remember watching that. And there was an mm-hmm. audible gasp oh, yeah. that it did not win. And I think a lot of the people in the Academy were really confused that it didn't win. Um, so I'm not sure what happened there. Homophobia um,
1: happened there. I, I think right. that's really yeah. simple. I think yeah. it was just they weren't ready to, fully, yeah. they're like we'll embrace it to a point, but we're not going to fully embrace it. So but we're still going to say we're embracing diversity by embracing this movie Crash that is a totally, you know, white savior movie. and so Right.
3: <laughs> super heavy handed. I didn't realize Crash was a terrible movie the first time I watched it. <laughs> I somehow <laughs> overlooked that. But yeah, yeah, I think that they were willing to let this movie be nominated because how could you not? It's beautifully acted and the cinematography is beautiful, like we've said, but they weren't willing to let it win. Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. I think you're right. And I, I remember reading, I just read somewhere last night that they did a, a survey or something of the Academy the same people who voted, and it it overwhelmingly broke back would have won over a crash if they revoted like just a year, a couple years afterwards because there was so much controversy that it didn't win. Um, you know, and it's, I, there's only two movies that I think of in the history, um, that I can think of off the top of my head that caused that much promotion when it didn't win. And that was, the other was Prince of Tides, you know, because it was directed by a woman, you know? Um, and there was a lot of, contra- or that she wasn't nominated, I'm sorry, for for directing, because Billy Crystal came out and said, when he did his little parody of all the movies and what did this film direct itself? You know, and there was, like, dead silence. <laughs> um, <clears throat> because, oh, yeah, we, we kind of overlooked the fact that she, Barbra Streisand directed a hell of a film. But um,
1: anyway, uh, yeah,
2: I, I think you're absolutely right. I think it was homophobia that that kept it from winning.
1: Yeah, and like I've mentioned, I mean, that's one of the themes of this year for our for our show is the fact that We need more representation in all forms and behind, in front of every, everywhere in in Hollywood, because even today, you know, Hollywood says it's making strides and it's being more inclusive, but you have this year's Academy Awards where they're like, okay, we'll be inclusive in the supporting supporting categories, and yes, we're we're awarding a. woman director we have two female directors being nominated which there should have been three regina king should have been nominated too but (laughs) that's a whole nother thing and they could have had this instance where all four acting winners could have been people of color and they would have all been deserving but then they ended up not doing that and i'm not putting down those performances like i said i'm not putting those down i'm just saying that the academy likes to say here we're going to make these strides and we're giving you these little crumbs these breadcrumbs like Having Moonlight win was this incredible breadcrumb of, you know, the first LGBTQIA movie to ever win Best Picture. And especially with all black cast, that was incredible and amazing. But then we're going to go and we're going to award a movie like Green Book, which is another white savior movie. Or we're going to nominate like movies that are, you know, that were directed by predators. I don't care if they were fired like Bohemian Rhapsody, or we're going to just have a lot of white men or, you know, we'll award Catherine Bigelow, but it's going to be years before we're going to award another woman. And the reason we awarded her is, well, at least she made something that in our minds is more of a male movie because there's action in it. So it's this whole thing where Hollywood likes to claim it's liberal and likes to claim it's advanced, but it's really not in a lot of respects. And that's because it's controlled so much by cis Uh, men sister men that it's like white men and that's a big problem there and we just need everybody represented and that's the way you get better stories and I think it was I do remember it was a big shock when this didn't win best picture it was an absolute shock it's one of those moments that people do remember because also the other thing I want to say is 2005 there were some pretty incredible movies that came out that year and some incredible independent features. Some incredible performances. And <laughs> the fact that Crash won out of all those. It's just, I don't know. I mean, it's not shocking now to me looking back. But I know at the time it was like, okay. But they kind of thought, okay, we'll give Ang Lee the director award. And that will be enough. <laughs> That's all we're going to do for for this. So, yeah. It, yeah, it was a big, big, like... Uh, yeah, I was so pissed about that. That
3: was just—I just, oh. just want to slip in. Don't get me started on Bohemian Rhapsody. <laughs> oh
1: God. Yeah, I know. I know. I have a lot of anger about that movie, and I have a lot of anger for uh, Bryan Singer's victims <laughs> that they had to endure a whole awards season of a movie that was directed by a man that was—that uh, is a predator, and it just. uh yeah. Okay, so I want to end just by talking about Heath Ledger here because, of course, everybody knows Heath Ledger sadly passed away. Um, And, of course, I think this is one of the roles, but, of course, his role as Joker is his legacy of the two roles that I think people associate him with the most. And I know I remember where I was when I heard he had died. I don't know if Danelle and Michelle remember where they were, but it was a very, very, very tragic tragic thing. And so I just want to talk about his performance, just celebrate his performance and anything else you want to see, say about Heath Ledger to know.
2: I do remember where I was. Um, I was at work and I remember my phone just started blowing up. Like (laughs) I must've gotten like a a dozen text messages within like two minutes from friends. And I remember the first one I read um, that said he had passed I immediately just—I think—I startled my coworkers because I was like, "What? No!" Like really, really loud. Um, he's one of those those actors that have that have sadly passed. That it just really had an impact, and I think his impact is still felt. You know, the loss of his 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 work. He just seemed like a genuinely good person, um, an interesting person. He seemed like the kind of person just because I come from a theater and acting background that I. I'd want to sit down and have coffee with and, and talk acting, you know, the the intricacies of it and just the creation of a character. And I love getting into that. And he seems like somebody you could just sit out and talk about that with hours, for hours, you know? So it was just really tragic. He was so good at what he did. So amazingly gifted. And it had a huge impact on my own work. Um, I remember when Brokeback came out, I was really, really struggling with a um, final scene that we were working on in class <laughs> and I remember talking to my professor and going <clears throat> home that weekend and I think that's the weekend I saw Brokeback and um, coming back and just the physicality I was missing that piece in this character and just watching his work it kind of pulled me into that right it just reminded me of what I needed to do and I remember we we worked on the scene and she pulled me aside and she's like, whatever, whatever happened, you know, the turnaround is amazing. Keep doing that. Like, and it blew me away that, you know, it had that much of an impact on my own work and just learning from watching him. So yeah, it's really sad. I mean, I would love to see what he would have been doing now, you know, what films he would have brought to life. And, you know, it's just sad. I think that scene for me when, he comes in all giddy from seeing Jack for the first time and after their initial meet and he's getting ready to leave, you know, and, um, I believe Jenny, the, the older child comes to, or Alma junior comes to him and he picks her up and hands a hands her off and is running out the door and the devastation on her face, Alma's face kind of made me think about, well, just two years later, you know, there was Michelle left with a baby around that same age you know, I'm losing him. And I it just hit me when I watched that. I was like, oh, sad. So it's really sad um, just on a personal level, you know, that he didn't get to see his daughter grow up as well as, you know, selfishly, we didn't get to see his work going forward. So, yeah, yeah. it is sad.
3: Yeah. And Michelle. Um, I've been a longtime lover of Heath Ledger his beautiful face and his uh, and his work uh, for a couple years you know before I saw um, Brokeback Mountain of course well for many years before I actually saw Brokeback Mountain because I didn't see it when it first came out but I remember loving him in I think it was Four Feathers and then Ten Things I Hate About You and The Night's Tale like I love him in those roles but I also love him in the more dramatic stuff and he really was such an incredible actor I mean even in just this movie, how he. You touched on it earlier, but how he just lost himself in this, in this character. And I don't remember if I heard it, like, right when it happened, or maybe a little bit after. Uh, but it was a devastating thing. Like, you know, there are some celebrities where you have that reaction, like, you don't know them personally, but it's just like, you just have this very real reaction to, to hearing of their loss. And he was one of those for me, for sure. And, I'm a big Batman fan and so was definitely you know, looking forward to his turn in that movie because all the buzz had been about how great he was doing in that role of the Joker. And then definitely like after he passed away and they were talking, you know, the, and I don't, I don't know all that. I didn't look into it. I intentionally tried not to, to look into that um, at the time. And even now, um, but uh, you know, i like, just talked about like how great he was in that role and how much he slipped into that character and, So, yeah, I do, you know, grieve the loss of him as a person, but also the loss of of his art and of his talent. And uh, what he did give us was was really great. But he you know, when he did Brokeback Mountain, he wasn't Heath Ledger like, you know, we know him now. He even Jake Gyllenhaal wasn't Jake Gyllenhaal at, at that point. And so just to see what the trajectory could have been for for him as an actor and also for him as as just a man, as a person, you know, who had an infant child. And um, yeah, it was one of those that was devastating, a very hard loss. And when I watched that movie, this, when I watched the movie this morning, when I finished it and it's that last scene after, you know, he loses Jack. And usually what I have to do, this is ridiculous, but what I have to do after I only get emotional about fictional things. I don't cry about real life. (laughs) If my family saw me crying about this movie, I'd be like, who are you? (laughs) I do not cry about real life things. Usually. Uh, but so I, I finished watching that and I was like, okay, well now I need to go see something with Jake Gyllenhaal in it so I can know that he's all right, you know? And then, but then I thought about Heath Ledger and I was like, you know, just kind of faced again with, with his death and, uh, yeah. And it just kind of hit me hard. Luckily I had to mad dash to put all my equipment together to get ready for, (laughs) for recording today. So I didn't get to sit with those emotions for too long and try to eat my feelings and ice cream about it. But yeah, but I love him and, you know, it's just a, just a sad, sad, sad story. Yeah, yeah it's very,
1: uh, yeah, I remember I was at work too and I just remember I had like the radio on or something and I remember hearing it on there and I really didn't believe what I had heard. I was like, wait, I didn't really hear that. And then looking it up and seeing that it was real and it being such a shock uh, we're going to talk later this in a, in July. It's July or August. Sorry, we're going to be talking about um, Stand by Me as well, and so we're going to be talking about River Phoenix. And that was another one that when I was really young and uh, a teenager, and when he died, that was also one of those where it's like, you, you when people who are young die, it's like the and there, it's like this bigger impact. I'm not saying it's not tragic when people die of all ages. It's just, I think certain times, especially when they are so gifted and talented and you never get to see what their legacy would have become. I think Heath Ledger's performance in Brokeback Mountain and his performance, of course, as as the Joker are two of the best performances we've ever seen on screen. And so it makes it really sad to know that we will, we never got to see what other amazing performances he would have given the world and i'm sure he would be like a multi-oscar nominated if not winner by now and i'm sure it would have been incredible to watch him because he does become the character fully and completely he every ounce of him his eyes his mannerisms his body everything he just totally inhabits habits the character and i will say I remember when it was announced he was gonna be the Joker, and I—I'm also a big Batman fan. I'm not as much of a Batman fan now. Iterations of Batman, but like, of course, Christian fucking Bale—you know, the mascot of this podcast.
3: <laughs> that <laughs> is the best Batman.
1: Yeah. Yes, best Batman and best Bruce Wayne, hands down. He was amazing. And yeah, uh, yes, yeah. and I'm, I love and I Batman. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and we're gonna talk about the Dark Knight trilogy next. Year because we are going to do a whole month celebrating Christian fucking Bale, <laughs> so we're definitely going to talk more about. This I want woman. in on that. <laughs> okay. I, know, cool. I have a feeling those are going to be really popular episodes because our American Psycho episode is one of our most popular episodes this year. So that's why I was like, okay, we're just going to do a Christian Bale month. But anyway, I I know when it was announced that Heath Ledger was going to be Joker, I will say even though I liked Heath Ledger, I was kind of like. Uh, I don't know about this. Um, And I think part of that was in my mind, I still had Jack Nicholson as the Joker in my head. And I kind of wasn't sure how Heath Ledger would do this. And then seeing that performance, just everything he did was so scary. And he was so scary. There's scenes in that movie where like, when he walks away from the hospital after he's blown the hospital up and he's in the nurses uniform, and the way he walks is terrifying, and the way he moves his mouth, and the way his tongue is constantly going in and out, is so creepy. And yeah. makeup's not done perfect. And yeah, he nailed it.
3: Yeah. I mean, he perfectly portrayed that psychotic, manic. You know, where you hate him, you love him, you're scared of him. You know, yeah, totally yeah. nailed it. Yeah,
1: Jared Leto wishes he could be that good. Sorry, I do yeah. not like Jared. Well, that and
2: just that—that that whole scene is so iconic. I mean, when he walks away and his little shoulder yes. shrug, you know, like you know, just like ah.
3: it's it just iconic. He, he'd me yeah, laughing and then he'd be literally terrified. Like I remember feeling uncomfortable.
1: <laughs> yeah,
2: he
3: because was he did it so freaking well.
1: Yeah, he was so good. And I do think, um, even though I have major issues with the movie itself, I do think Walking Phoenix was really good. But that was a totally different character. But I think he was also really good. But it was a different, different, different. <laughs> in a lot yeah, of just- totally different Joker. Yeah. <laughs> totally different. Yeah. Yeah. But and that's just Heath Fledger, I think, had no fear when he would. I mean, I'm sure he did. But I mean, he like would channel that into these characters and give his all. And and of course, uh, 10 Things that I Hate About You, which we are also going to cover next year, I will say, because we're going to be talking about romantic comedies. And that's on my list for next year. Yes, that's how much I plan ahead of people. <laughs> yes, yes, So we'll be talking about Heath Ledger again. I'm amazed. I'm not even close to crying. This is really incredible. I don't know if it's yeah. because I'm distracted because there's rain just pouring down. So apologies, <laughs> listeners, if you're hearing rain pouring. But yeah, I'm amazed. I had I'm not even close to crying. So I probably will when we talk about talk about him a couple times next next year. Uh, I do think it's sad that his death got wrapped up so much in the role of the Joker and then a lot of people said that's why he died was because that role was too intense. And I think while I understand why people might be saying that, I think in some respects, it's kind of disrespectful to his legacy and to him and to his family.
2: I agree with that. Yeah, I do, too. I think, you know, I think there was a lot of comparisons to what happened with River Phoenix and to what happened with Heath and I, I think they were totally separate. Um, I don't think he necessarily got lost in the Joker, um, like people have said. I think it was a different story. So yeah, and it's unfortunate because it takes away from his, his work, his performance, and who he was as a person. And it does a disservice um, to, to the people he left behind, for sure.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and it also... Does a disservice to his craft and <laughs> to who he was as a performer. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and the I'm not... brilliance of his work,
2: you know, the sheer mm-hmm. brilliance. Right? I mean, he's once in a lifetime type of actor. He really was, and I don't think a lot of people realize that. You know, just how intricate <laughs> the work that he did was, and how hard it is to do what he did. Um, And to do it as beautifully as he did. So, yeah, Yeah. I think it takes away from that, unfortunately.
1: Yeah, Yeah, it definitely does. And I think, you know, I mean, as someone who also used to act, I know there are roles that you might inhabit and they kind of are hard to do. I remember doing a scene work and having to play someone addicted to heroin and the other person I was in love with being addicted to heroin. And I remember crawling on the floor and in this state of desperation. And I remember how emotionally exhausting that was. And it does take a minute, minute to get out of that. But at the same time, if that's something you are doing and you love to do, yes, that may affect you. But I think there was a lot more going on that we don't know about. We don't know. We don't know him. We didn't know him. We knew only his work and his acting. And so to wrap it all together, just really never sat well with me, especially the fact that they there be memes about it. And, and when Joaquin Phoenix was, cast in the Joker you would see those memes come back and be like Heath Ledger and then there would be the memes of like Heath Ledger's looking over you (laughs) it's just kind of like him watching over you and I'm like it's just kind of disrespectful you know and of course Joaquin Phoenix has his own thing where he has his own he's always in the shadow of his brother River so he's also got that too so it's just yeah I think sometimes we just kind of I don't know we forget that they're real human beings that died and these personas that we've built Mm -hmm. up in our heads. Okay, well, I have really enjoyed this conversation, and um, I'm really looking forward to talking about Heath Ledger some more next year. Okay, well, we're going to go ahead and close out, and I just want to go around to everybody. If you want to be found, say where you can be found,
2: Danelle. Um, Yeah, you can find me um, on Facebook, also on Twitter, although I'm not on there very much, (laughs) Um, and Instagram, so that's where you can find me. Most of the time. So um, just by my name or Draven Pearl.
1: Thank you. Awesome. And then, Michelle, where can they find your podcast?
3: Uh, you can find my podcast on our website, com, or on your preferred streaming platform. We should be on just about all of them. Uh, if we're not, send me an email, let me know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> And you can also just access our social media. Um, We are Liberty Diner Dish on most things, except on Twitter, we are at Diner Dish. So that's where you can find me. Thank you so much. And this is
1: Erin. You can follow me on Twitter at E April Beauty. The E and the A and the B are capitalized. Be sure to like the show on Facebook at facebook.com slash it's a fandom thing pod on Twitter at fandom thing pod. No, it's in that one on Instagram at it's a fandom thing pod. Um, if you have any feedback, if you would like to be a potential co-host on one of our nights of horror trivia, remember, it's going to be 10 weeks. And each night's going to be streaming. This is starting in September. Sign-ups, if you want to participate, if you want to compete, are starting. will be starting August 1st. So there will be more information about that. But if you are a horror creator or if you are a horror podcast and you would like to be on one of these, which, of course, we're going to be, there's 10 different themes each week. The, one, the only caveats is that you have to be comfortable to be on camera because this is going to be a live stream on YouTube and Facebook. Uh, two is that I do ask that you, if you were OK with it, that you dress in theme for what that week's theme is. Uh, you would also be helping with the judging of costumes because we're going to have costumes be part of the competition. So you would be judging in that as well. Uh, so as long as you're comfortable with that, um, feel free to reach out to us at it's a fandom thing pod at Gmail dot com. I'll just quickly say what those 10 weeks are going to be. The things are going to be we're going to be doing. And this isn't the order yet. I haven't decided yet, but we're doing vampires, zombies, werewolves, aliens, horror, comedy, psychological horror, queer horror, body horror um paranormal and slashers so a lot of different things that we're going to be doing it's going to be a lot of fun it's going to be a team event so the people competing will be a team it'll probably be like um just two people per team i haven't decided but it might be up to four so it should be a lot of fun so if you are a creator and you want to be part of that or if you want to donate anything for the grand prize um, even if you want to talk to me about me potentially purchasing it for the grand prize, please feel free to reach out to us. At once again, at, uh, it's a fan thing pod at gmail.com, or you can hit up our DMS uh, preferably on Twitter. Cause that's where I'm most active with the account. Cause er- the other Aaron runs uh, the Facebook and Instagram accounts. So, and next week, um, actually tomorrow night, we're going to be doing our, since this is dropping on Friday, we're doing our live stream Uh, George Michael. So we're going to be talking about George Michael. And I'm very excited because we have not talked about music very much on this podcast. And for a person like me who loves music more than anything, it's pretty remarkable that we haven't. So I'm looking forward to that. Hoping Danelle will be there. She might not, but hoping Danelle will be there. Jesse from Sudden But Inevitable podcast will be there. Um, And Carla will be there. So it's going to be a lot of fun. So you will have Erla. That's, of course, Carla and I's name together now that has been determined. So it should be a lot of fun. And then after that, we're going to be talking about the series Orange is the New Black. So until next time, remember, it's a fandom thing. Black lives matter and stop Asian hate. Thank you again for listening to It's a Fandom Thing. Be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and follow us on all your favorite podcast platforms. Our logo was designed by Brooke Belly, with cover art by Carla Temmis. Additional research was done by Megan Archuleta. Our Instagram and Facebook content producer and creator is Erin Amos. And our producer is Lila Tafola. I'm your host, Aaron Marlowe. And remember, keep that fandom spirit alive.